0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Makaitis. Hello,
1: and thanks for joining us here for episode 546 with David Marquet. David is a former nuclear submarine commander who's learned a thing or two about how little shifts in your language can have big impact in your organization, the people that you're communicating with. He's gotten some strong praise from folks like Stephen Covey. So you're going to learn, one, how language impacts your leadership. Two, how to use dissent in the workplace to your advantage. And three, how we're mistaking coercion for leadership. If you want to see the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep 546 Or you can expand your episode notes, details, descriptions, as it's called in your assorted apps, and just tap it to get there all the faster that way. Now, here's David's story. David Marquet is a student of leadership and organizational design and a former nuclear submarine commander. He was named one of the top 100 leadership speakers by Inc. Magazine and is the author of the Amazon number one bestseller, Turn the Ship Around, and the Turn the Ship Around workbook, David's new book, Leadership is Language, released recently by Penguin Random House. Big thanks to David for sharing his wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out Here is David. David, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast.
2: Thanks for having me on your show, Pete.
1: Well, I think the first thing I need to address is, um, have you in fact crossed the United States on your bicycle?
2: Yeah. (laughs) I've done segments of it, not at all at the same time, but I've done uh, various segments. So last summer, I went from Boise, Idaho to Casper, Wyoming, which was epic because it took me over the, the Tetons, and through Teton Pass. Now, I live in Florida. <laughs> like, an overpass is a hill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm out there, and it's like, turn left, summit, 20 miles. <laughs> 20 miles that way, 4,000 feet that way. <laughs> and I just looked at that. I was like, are you kidding me?
1: Uh, but I made it through. Well, good work. Good work. Thank you. My dad was a big bicyclist, and so uh, respect. We have hosted bicyclists at our childhood home, I recall, as they were crossing that nation. They were from Australia. My mom said, they sure eat a lot. (laughs)
2: Yeah. (laughs) That's why you're a cyclist. So you can eat a lot. (laughs) You broke the
1: code. Well, so speaking of breaking the code, just as we were chit-chatting before pushing record, you keyed in on my bookshelf, Stephen Covey's The Eighth Habit. And uh, you've got a cool Stephen Covey connection. Can you lay it on us?
2: Yeah. So when I was submarine commander on the Santa Fe, we were doing a lot of seven habits stuff. And in some respects, everything that we did, which I write about and turn the ship around, was simply applying the seven habits, which is kind of written at an individual level, at an organizational level. So habit one, be proactive. And we kept asking the question, what would it sound like if everybody in the orga- organization acted proactively and then we would put some words to it and we would practice those words and magic it was work it worked and so we would do that and so when we started winning all these awards the story got out and uh, dr. Covey was doing this work with the Navy back in on the, the East Coast and he heard about it and he I get this phone call. Dr. Covey wants to come ride your submarine. I'm like, Dr. Stephen Covey. (laughs) And I was just like running around in circles like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. And he came out. It was such an amazing day. We picked him up off of Maui. It was crystal clear. Dolphins were jumping. I mean, it was just one of those uh, (laughs) just magic moments. And he's really quiet, kind of nervous. And he walks around the ship and he finally comes up to me at the end. We're driving into Pearl Harbor, standing on the bridge. And he says, I know I figured it out. First, he says it's the most empowering workplace I've ever seen. I said, Well, thank you very much. We do use you go. that word.
1: Superlative from a yeah. man who's seen a lot. That's awesome. Yeah,
2: right, right. Congrats. But I didn't like the word empowerment. I didn't I didn't use it because I thought it was um I labeled it a polluted word because it meant everyone had already attached meaning to it. So it was it was when you said the word, you you got whatever you got. I mean, everyone sort of looked mm-hmm. at it through their own lens. But anyway, uh he's and and, and we talked. But it was magic, and then he said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna write about you." And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, sure."
1: <laughs> and then in the
2: Eighth Habit, which I see on your bookshelf behind you, really? I always like to spy. I look at the bookshelves behind, yeah, and I see, I see the Eighth Habit. So, uh, and that was really amazing. And then he wrote the forward for Turn the Ship Around. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, he passed away like a month after he wrote. We got the forward of, forward like on the first of April. And he went in, he had his bicycle accident. Uh, some, later that month, it was like the 20th or something. About three
1: weeks later, really tragic, never came out of the coma. So That was mm-hmm. a huge loss. Yes. Well, uh, his um, legacy is living on you know, through those who he teaches and has taught and touched. And, and you're a, a shining example. And, and you, in turn, are passing the wisdom along and one of your big areas of focus is the language—the actual word choice that folks use. Can you kind of lay that on us? Like, what's your big kind of aha or insight or discovery into the notion of language and leading?
2: So here's the deal: all the words that seem natural and normal to us—they—they they, they sound normal in our ear, like uh, all hands meeting or having a can-do organization, and. All those words, the the reason they're natural is because we've heard them from our bosses and our parents who heard them from their bosses and their parents, which means they're from the industrial age. Okay. And essentially, it amounts to a programming, a playbook, I like to think of it, so that in a certain situation, we're going to react in a certain way. So someone comes up to you and tells you, gives you news that you don't like, like, hey, I think we should delay product release next week and this comes as unwelcome news of course people react in different ways but i predict it's going to be react respond reply they're going to either explain why they're wrong they're going to defend themselves something like that rarely will i see curiosity oh what do you see that i'm missing what do you know that i don't know and the question is that I was always struggling with is why does my programming take me in the unhelpful direction? Here's another example. We tend to ask binary questions and especially the most the least helpful binary question is a self-affirming binary question. Does that make sense? Right. Does that good? make sense? Right. So, <laughs> right. It's, <laughs> so it's not really a question. I just want to get everyone That's to right. agree and go along with me.
1: Well, I'm just thinking about how lame my podcast would be if those are the questions I asked. Yes. Right. <laughs> it's like, it's right. like the is teach show, and you're just an accessory. <laughs> right, exactly.
2: But I see leaders doing this, I hear leaders doing this all the time. And my and I think the reason is is because in the industrial age, that's what you wanted. You just wanted people to do what you wanted them to do. You didn't want a big discussion, and I didn't need the workers to be involved in decision making. But of course, now that's all. That doesn't work anymore. We need to let the people doing the work be involved in making decisions about the work. And so what that means is all these language patterns, which we've been programmed to do, are no longer helpful. So we have to go through the great reprogramming of the English language.
1: Okay. Well, so can you lay it on us in terms of, we got a few examples of things that don't work. Are we good? You know, makes sense. And so those are not ideal, not optimal. And the principle is that it doesn't encourage conversation, engagement, discussion. It's just sort of like, OK, you know, let's
2: let's move it along here. And in particular, dissenting, diverse and outlying opinions. These things. Reduce the likelihood they don't squish it to zero, but it's just these are these are biases
1: one direction or the other. They
2: just make it a little bit harder for the person who doesn't agree with the group to speak up. And that's a problem.
1: Yeah, you know, I think it is a problem, and it's funny as we record these words. Mitt Romney got some attention for a dissenting opinion. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. But but look at the reaction, right? We're, yeah. We're very, I didn't hear anybody. I, I wasn't. I, I was only. Per, I was flying today, so I missed a bunch of the news. But I didn't hear any responses. Oh, Mitt, tell us more about that. I'm so curious about your perspective. I didn't hear that. What I heard was, oh, you're wrong, you're screwed up, you're blah, 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 blah. Or well, you're right, we agree with you about." So this is a good example of how we, how,
1: these program responses, and you see it all the time in everyone. Mm-hmm. Certainly. So yes, there seems to be a, a bias against dissent. So let's dig in. So how do we get better language? Can you give us some core fundamental principles as well as some particular examples of hey let's stop saying this and say that instead. Yeah. So the, the
2: the key way one one way to think about it is are you embracing variability or are you reducing variability? Now there are things, there are lots of work following a procedure, manufacturing a part that benefit from reducing variability. And th- actually this is the problem because this is what we've inherited from the industrial age. Mm-hmm. We want Imagine you're making Lego blocks. I don't want the the holes to be like a little bit fatter or a little bit skinnier because they won't stack up very well. I want it always the same. So variability is an enemy. And we've been gotten really good at tuning out variability. But decision-making and thinking benefits from embracing variability. The fact that we have special rules when we go into a – we're going to go – hey, guys, we're going to do a brainstorming session. We're going to have some special rules so we can invoke creativity. Mm-hmm. What that means is the normal way we do work at work kills creativity. It's oh, just an go. admission of that. So, so what we need to do is have the language of work which allows to send the opinion. So here's, here's one thing that a lot of people do wrong. If you're doing a decision meeting, what you want to do is vote first, then discuss. Hmm. What most people do is they'll talk about it. All this does is serve to anchor the group. Let's group think build up. Let's the people who think different than the group, they start shrinking down in their chair and it becomes very hard to disagree. Well, I don't think 737 Mac software is safe. I don't think we should do the launch. Uh, wh- whatever happens. Every, 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 every innovation starts as an outlying and dissenting opinion. The, the water in Flint, Michigan is poison, whatever. They, they always start on the fringes, and sometimes they deserve to stay out there on the fringes, but sometimes they don't. But you don't know that if a you suppress them so you don't even hear them, or b you don't listen to them when they're voiced. So, mm-hmm. so, what you want to do is vo- vote for it in a probabilistic way. Here's the trick start the question with the word how. How sure are you? How strongly do you support this? How likely? Uh, Is this assumption to be true? Not will it be true? Is it safe? Are there weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? Any question about the future is going to be probable, should be probabilistic because we don't know. And then uh, after the vote, you look for the people who voted highest
1: for and highest against. These are the outliers. They're on the fringes and you invite them to speak. Now, just like okay, a quick time out there. So, highest for and highest against. Yeah. So then, it's not as simple. I'm for this. I'm against this. But rather, I'm a zero. I'm a one hundred. Or how are you thinking about the voting?
2: Yeah. So uh, when you, uh, we, we, you can use your hand. So we do. If it's just really quick, you're out in the field. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a team about uh, construction site team. Hey, we're ready to start the next phase. We're ready to pour concrete. How ready? How ready? are? How ready are we to do this? Mm-hmm. And people put their hands up. Five, 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 four, five, five, four. OK. OK. It's a lot easier because someone could send us. It's easy for someone to say four instead of five, but it's very difficult for someone to actually put their hand up and do it. Thumbs down. Oh, that's a, there's a big cultural
1: stigma to that.
2: So you got oh, to ask. The, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. When we use – in the office, we have a set of cards that go 1, 5, 1 to 99, 1, 5, 20, 50, 80, 95, 99, 1 to 99. The key – because you don't want to do 0 and 100 because what you're trying to do is reprogram people's brains to think probabilistically. Yeah. So that nothing is nothing is 100 or 1. It's like there's there's never zero chance and there's never a 0-100 chance of something happening. Will this product work?
1: Oh, David – I am loving this so much. And I just recently, with my team, as we're assessing this is pretty meta podcast guests, I said, okay, this numbering system might not make sense to you, but it'd be really easy for me if in our system, you were to give me a number between zero and 100 based upon the probability your best guess that this guest will be in the top 10% of engagement amongst yeah. all of our guests. Beautiful. And then that makes it easy for me as I just sort, like, all right, these are the people my team loves. <laughs> you know, let's start at the top and move on down.
2: Yeah, that's so much better than saying, will this be in the top yeah. 10%, which
1: is an impossible. Like, yes or no to David, you know, yeah, it's yeah, much yeah, right. broader.
2: Uh huh. Right, what's your sense, yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, I love that.
1: Cool, all right, so I'm jiving here. So we're thinking probabilistically, we're voting in advance. What are some of the other best practices?
2: So, when it comes to asking questions, there's a whole bunch of things. Uh, The key is when you're asking questions, most people ask questions. They're either actively inserting their own uh, viewpoint into the question, like, why would you want to do that?
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Hey, I
2: think we should delay launch, product launch. Why would you want? So, you're sending the signal, hey, you're wrong. This is unwelcome news. You need to defend it versus, oh, what do you see that's behind that thinking in a very sort of neutral way? So the idea is you want to be curious before compelling. You want to ask questions. You want to wipe your mind clean and not inject uh, your point of view, even when you're not deliberately trying to inject your point of view. We sometimes inject a point of view. And there's this uh, sub school of asking questions called clean language, which I've I pulled some inspirations from really interesting. So, for example, if your friend comes up to you and says, I'm having trouble with this coworker, you might say, well, do you have the guts to stand up to them? Well, this implies a whole bunch of things like, A, you should stay, like standing up to them is the right thing yeah. to do. It's the right metaphor, not punch them in the face or not uh-huh. let him alone. And do you have the guts to suggest that the, the, the limiting Previous. resource is courage not yeah. maybe it's time. So you're injecting all these, um, all, all your basic experience of, the, of what you think they're saying into the question. So what you want to try and do is just say, oh, tell me more or "Yeah, what kind of a problem is that? And and just be as neutral as possible about it. Why, the, the way I think about it is I wipe my mind clean. I just, <laughs> which is easier some days than other, but I just try and make a big, big white tableau in my head and say, I don't know anything. And my job is to learn as much as possible in the next couple of minutes. Now, I'm not saying you have to agree. They come up and say, hey, I I think we should delay product launch. I'm not saying automatically delay product launch, not at all. But what I'm saying is make the decision after you've listened to them. If you find yourself saying the words, I hear you, but Mm -hmm. that's code for I'm not listening to you. Because the only reason you feel compelled to say, I hear you, is because you have a sense that they think you're not hearing them, so you feel like compelled to say, I hear you. No one ever felt more heard because someone said, oh, I hear you. So just listen to them, and you'll never feel the, the compulsion to say, I hear you. Yeah. Trust yeah, me is another one. If you find yourself <laughs> saying, trust me, then, then you're on the wrong track. You, you should never have to say that.
1: Yeah. Keep it going. So, you're sharing some phrases that are indicative of something beneath the surface that's not working and it's hitting home. I think I've said, I hear you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Me too, all the time. But
2: so, so here, so it goes back to the industrial age and, and what I'm calling this playbook. So, the key thing in the industrial age, the key play, so to speak, is uh, I label obey the clock. That's why we have words like clockwork. That's why we pay people by the hour, especially the people, the workers. We can pay the thinkers by salary, but the workers get paid by the hour because obey the clock. So there's all these cultural stigmas against saying time out. I think we ought to delay product launch because it runs against the obey the clock play. Now, the problem with obey the clock is, of course, it's very hard to think when you have the pressure of the clock, tick, 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 and you got to make so many widgets per hour. So what leaders want to do is what I call control the clock. Leaders though, the leaders need to say, hey, timeout. We got time to f- you guys are doing a great job chopping down this forest. Now I want to talk about is this the right forest? And should we be chopping it down? And let's give the team the ability of saying timeout. Now it's not enough to just say, oh, team, everyone can say timeout. I've seen this in, say, for example, in a hospital situation or right. Or some manufacturing plants. That's yeah, a real... manufacturing plant, nuclear power plant. Yeah, there, there's this lip service. Oh, well, anyone can stop. But if you don't actually give them a mechanism, okay, here's a yellow card. If you think we need to take a pause, raise it or say the following code word. You, and practice. If it's never practiced, the same stigmas will build up. But if we practice it and then it's like, oh, it's not a big deal. Time out. Quick it just doesn't need to be a long time. You have to make it easy to exit production and go into thinking, but you also have to make it easy to say, okay, we're done thinking, now we're going to go back to work. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you end up biased in one direction or the other.
1: Yeah, certainly. And so you encourage it, you practice it, you give a mechanism, and you appreciate it, I guess, when they use the mechanism. As yes. opposed to like, oh, dang it, David, what is it now? This is, uh, <laughs> <you> yeah. <know. laughs> so is a perfect
2: example of this is the Andon cord in the Toyota production system. This is, Andon is the Japanese word for lantern. And so they've equipped the stations with what used to be a cord, now a button for the workers. They're in the production line. Parts are moving past them. They have a problem. So they can't solve the problem while the parts are moving. That's too much time pressure. So they have to push the button, which signals, hey, I've got a problem. I need to shift into problem-solving mode. I need to pause. I need to call a pause and shift uh, to problem-solving mode. And um, so that that's what that serves. That serves as a way for the so well, you go to a construction site and say, "Well, how do how do the guys signal that they have a problem?" The guy's on the third floor installing windows, and he's got they've got a problem. They, there's no way we haven't instituted an, a mechanism like Toyota production system. So there's no way they just to start run. yelling. <laughs> They're just yell hey, at each other. Hey! Or right. we come out at the end of shift to say, "Yeah, I had to bang a few windows in because it really didn't fit quite right." Oh, but it would have been nice to actually solve the root problem. <laughs> no. All right, so there's a th- we're thinking about the clock so that's obey the clock, yeah, that's the core play, so uh, everything kind of stems out of that and and the second thing about the industrial age organization is we separate thinkers from doers. that's why we have these phrases like white collar blue collars, leaders, followers, thinkers doers,
1: mm-hmm. there's some terms in Hebrew at uh, gaval and uh, the other one. yeah, we've got these dichotomies, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah they're they, yeah exactly they're they're binary dichotomies. And we bend people into one of two tribes. And so when I think about, okay, well, what's it like to be a doer? Well, all you do is do, 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 do what you're told. So all leadership is coercive because it's, it's one group of people choosing what the other group of people ought to do. And then their role is to then comply and continue the production line as long as possible. And so again, these are unhelpful patterns because coercion isn't a good way to treat people. It's much more be- much better to have collaboration and, and commitment. Now here's the trick. We talked about the meeting thing. Uh, so I gave uh, had uh, 10 executives from a big company, two tables of five and I, I gave them a problem. It was like well, how many countries are in Africa? You can you can't look it up. And, so, and someone at the end of one table blurts out a number. let's say they say 50 and pretty soon that table comes at 50. And, and here's the, tr- the other thing. your table has to agree. Mm-hmm. You got to have a group. So, so it's a, so it's a decision making exercise for a group. Your table has to agree. Cause they have to decide what their number is pretty soon 50. And guess what? 30 seconds later, the other table said 50. And who was the person yeah. who said 50? It was the CEO and the co-founder. So, that person is paying a lot of people a lot of money simply to echo back what that person's thinking. Now, here's the key. When I said, Oh, did you guys collaborate on this? Oh yeah, sure. Everyone's voice was heard. (laughs) No, it wasn't. This is called coercion. And so people use the word influence, uh, inspire, but it's really coercion. Like let's not pretend it's not coercion. I'm getting you to do what I want you to do. (laughs) And that's coercion. So what you want is true collaboration, and that happens first. Say everybody write down what you think the number is before we contaminate you with any group think. Then everyone flips their cards up, and just like before, let's look at the high and the low. Okay, how'd you like how'd you come up with your number? How'd you come up with your number? And now we can coalesce on a number. The maximum amount of variability in the group the maximum amount of cognitive diversity will occur before any conversation and you want to capture that moment in time. But well, I, I should know the answer to that. I think there are, uh, I think there 99. <laughs> All right, none of those, 54. Sorry, my bad, 54. Uh, now here's another thing that's interesting. If you say, ask people, say, okay, write down the last two digits of your phone number. Okay. Now write down how many countries there are you think in Africa. Yeah, do those numbers correlate? Answer, yes. Should they? No. And this is anchoring. Even when you explain to people that anchoring is a phenomenon, it will still happen. So this is, this is the, these are the perils of throwing out your answer first. But we do it because we want to move so quickly away from that uncertainty and variability. We want to collapse variability
1: prematurely mm-hmm. without giving it the cognitive respect that it's owed. Oof. David, this is so good. This is just really getting my wheels turning here. I'm so glad. That's the highest praise. Man. And the anchoring, well, I heard another study about anchoring, like, um, that even judges, right, like perhaps the most impartial of all, would be anchored by the address on... A piece of stationery or in like a mock case that they presented to them in terms of like what should the settlement amount or judgment uh, arbitration amount be in a case like it has nothing to do with that. These are supposed to be our most um, impartial and brilliant arbiters of uh, decision making that that we have in our society and they succumb to it. So nobody's immune.
2: Yeah, so uh, I, we're all, we are all have these biases, and they're wired into us. And I, you wanna inoculate yourself and your team as much as possible, but it's very difficult. Here's another thing. Um, the bias is called escalation of commitment, which means that if you made a decision, you've basically tainted yourself from evaluating the decision. And in the face of evidence that the decision was not a good one, Basically, you double down. Now, we have phrases like uh, in for a penny, in for a pound, uh, sunk cost fallacy. But the, but the way the way this plays out in organizations is, let's say the captain of a cruise ship makes a decision to do something. And someone lower on the team starts to or there's evidence that this is not a good idea. It's going to be very difficult for that person to reverse Uh, reverse their decision. On the other hand, if you separate decision maker from decision evaluator, so the senior person should reserve their their cognitive efforts to simply evaluate. But that means the team's got to be making decisions. Another way to think about it is the senior person should only have a brake pedal. Mm -hmm. The next tier below needs to have a gas pedal and a brake pedal. But as soon as the senior person start stepping on the gas they've then tainted themselves hey we all should you know keep selling print film hey we should all rent DVDs whatever it is we <laughs> taint ourselves and it's very very difficult to then reverse so, yeah. so so think about that am I decision maker or decision evaluator and if you want to be the decision evaluator you really got to work hard not to be the maker of the decision.
1: Yeah, that's great. And I'm thinking back to consulting at Bain where we would have a decision-making tool for teams called RAPID in terms of Mm -hmm. different roles in a decision, who recommends something, who approves something, who Mm. performs, inputs, decides. It's an acronym, RAPID. Mm. And then I thought that was great. It's like the approve is like uh, you have veto power and that indeed makes great sense to put in at sort of senior leadership level. And you just add another layer there in terms of if they're also the one sort of putting forward, hey, this would be really cool, don't you think? Yeah, <laughs> um, right, right, It's right. going to taint things.
2: Yeah, and and obviously we don't do it that obviously, but everybody knows the CEO is wants the product to launch. Or I mean, everybody knows the situation, and we have the meeting. The purpose of the meetings really is so that the CEO can later say, "Oh, well, you all were there. You had a chance
1: to say no, but you didn't." That's the real purpose. <laughs> Oh, so David, you've laid out um, a couple of what you're calling the six plays for all leaders about the clock and collaborating instead of coercing. Mm -hmm. Let's go ahead and just rock out the others since we're on a hot streak.
2: Okay, so on the industrial age side, we have obey the clock, which leads to coercing and the team complying with the purpose of continuing the production line as long as possible. When Henry Ford started making Model Ts in 1904, he made the same car for almost 20 years. If you worked on that line, you basically didn't have to learn any new tools, any new skills. You worked there almost 20 years making the same car. What you want to do now is control the clock, collaborate, then commit because commitment comes from within. True collaboration will result in the team making a commitment with the idea of completing. So doing the work in chunks. Hey, we're going to do a segment. So I like to think of it in terms of an expiration date or running an experiment. Hey, we're gonna do, we're gonna change the process, we're gonna do an, run an ad campaign, but not we're just gonna run an ad campaign until we feel like we're gonna stop running it. We're gonna run this ad campaign for three months, and then we're gonna see not only what we've achieved, but what we learn. And then that gets us to the fifth play, which is improve versus just prove. We have this approach during the industrial age. I gotta get it done, I gotta show, I gotta demonstrate competence, I gotta feel good, I gotta justify my salary. But that, that moves us away from this idea of how can I learn? How can I be curious? How can I get better? So, And a lot of companies have these quarterly goals. And when you look at them, their goals, like, what are we going to do? We're going to sell 8% more of this, and we're going to ship this. But they're lacking when I ask them, well, show me what you're going to learn this quarter. Even university, I work with a university, like, even they didn't have learning mm-hmm. goals. So I'm not saying don't have – uh, doing goals do, but but balance them with. Here's what we're going to do, and here's what we're going to learn, mm-hmm. and then we're going to pause. Complete. Complete allows two things. It allows you to pause and reflect, and improve the work. But it also allows you to celebrate. No, no completion. No celebration. No celebration. No sense of progress. No sense of progress. No fun at work.
1: Yeah. Certainly. And so it's interesting when it comes to doing versus learning, I guess I, I, in my brain, I see maybe an overlap in Venn diagram stuff. Like if I'm saying, hey, I want to learn about audio and what I want to do is make our podcast sound as amazing as possible, sort of both are happening learning and doing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So here's, here's what I think the formula is learning results. From thinking about something, so you have the thought, "I want the podcast to be amazing." And then you say, "You know what? If we tried a different kind of microphone, or if we tried uh, Squadcast as opposed to Skype," so you have a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. But then you actually have to do it. Just thinking about it doesn't result in learning. Then you do it. So let's do five. Don't you can't just do one because it might have been a one-off. Yeah. Like maybe the internet connection to Pit- Pittsburgh was bad that day. Who knows? Mm-hmm. So you, let's say let's do ten. And then we're going to – now we're going to pause. We complete. We're gonna First of all, we're going to celebrate what we achieved. Then we're going to say, mm-hmm. hey, what did we learn? Uh, well, nine out of ten of them were significantly better. One was worse. Well, was there some special case there? So that's it. So I think this, this is the cycle of learning, thinking, doing, reflecting. Yeah. It's like this uh, – I draw an H because it's thinking is broad perspective. Doing is focused – because once you make the commitment, you don't want to say, we're going to use Squadcast most of the time. Well, I wasn't really... A couple of them, we did Skype, but I wasn't really sure. You want to be... No, you want to be precise. You want to be Squadcast 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Then we're going to pause, not while we're in the middle of a, a podcast, but okay, we've done 10. Now let's pause. What does everybody think? Mm-hmm. Let's look at the data, that kind of
1: thing. The H, I see what you're saying, the shape. Uh-huh. Yeah, and
2: so it's this, this flip between... Reducing very vari- focus, which means reducing variability, reducing perspective, being focused, and embracing variability, and and it's this flip that we have to do. If we don't recognize that we're using our brains in two different ways, what I see is people are sort of crappily focused,
1: uh-huh.
2: and then sort of broadly expansive, but. But but their expansiveness is, is like this. It's like looking through a periscope on a submarine. There's a whole world out there. But we're like, oh yeah, we're embracing new ideas. But you know, they're four to six when they're when I could be one to nine. Mm-hmm. I don't even know there's a world beyond my my fence line.
1: Yeah, but David, so so many of your ideas are really resonating for me here. I guess I'd love to hear if it's a client or someone who just took and ran with these ideas and saw cool results as a result of doing so. Can you give us a transformation tale? Yeah, I'll
2: tell you a couple of stories. So um, one that might resonate with readers is McDonald's. Mm. So working with a franchise out in Oregon and they had 15 stores and the ops manager was stressed and she would every morning, Oh, do this, check on that, do that. And she would drive from store to store frantically, Telling them what to do and checking on them, we flipped the whole thing around. So she she now would get these texts every morning, and the store managers would be checking in with her. Hey, here's what I got. Here's what I see. Here's what I intend to do about it. Come on by if you want. We'd love to see you. Invite your invite your feedback, but we don't need you.
1: Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna do it anyway. <laughs>
2: and and she had so much less so much less stress in her life. Over the next twelve months, she lost. 50 pounds, a pound a week. Good. And she had some bad health markers and was sort of pre-diabetic. And all that stuff went away because we simply flipped it. We got mm-hmm. rid of that old industrial
1: age playbook. We had She may have been eating at places other than McDonald's because she didn't have to go there as often. It's so tempting to smell those fries. Yeah, it's, it's so hard. <laughs> They're so good. <laughs> well, if I could follow up. So that sounded like a tidy little framework there. So each person said, Here's what I got. Here's what I see. Here's what I'm going to do. Can you lay that out for us?
2: Yeah. So we have a framework that we apply to, to empowerment, which uh, we call the ladder of leadership. And it's simply the words that you say. We, we, we cast away the word empowerment. And it sounds like this. At the bottom, there's tell me what to do. That's obviously very low. And then there's here's what I see. Here's what I think. Here's what, here's what I, I would like to do. Now, the key there is unless you get approval, you don't do it. So you wait. Mm-hmm. And then here level five is here's what I intend to do. Tomorrow at noontime, I intend to launch a new ad campaign. Tomorrow, uh, next week on Wednesday, we, I intend to launch the product as scheduled. Now, the key about intent is unless you say no, it's going to happen. So if you don't get yeah. your email that day, you're not holding the team up. And, the, and here's the key. The team knowing that there it's gonna happen, it's on them. They they can never they own it. They can't say, oh well, the boss told me I knew it was a bad idea, but right. so so it's a trick, so to speak. It's a it's a mechanism, better word. It's a mechanism to get thinking because when when you know there's that if you say something, your boss doesn't look at the email, it's gonna happen. You become, invest, and you check with your, the person to the left and right. Hey, is everyone think thinks it's a good idea? I want to make sure it's good because it's going to be on me if we yeah. do this. Um, so, so the way we would write make reports is, so imagine in a submarine or uh, uh, oil refinery, nuclear power plant, operating room. We always report in that sequence. Here's what we see. So it's description. And then here's what I think which is analysis. And then here's what I think we should do, action. So the first step is detect, I had to notice something. So it's D2A2, detect, describe, assess, act. And we Mm -hmm. always go in that order because we're moving from safe to less safe because description is pretty safe. Hey, I noticed the patient's turning yellow. Can't argue with that. You uh, You may not know what you need to do, that's okay. If you, if you couple, if you say, don't bring me a problem without a solution, guess what you're going to get crickets <laughs> Fewer people telling you problems. Yeah. That's what you're going to get because you just made it. Every time you make a speed bump to a behavior you want, you're going to get less of the behavior that you want. So you just put a speed bump on the behavior of reporting problems. So you say, bring me problems. You don't have to have a solution. If you have a solution bonus points for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, and, 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 and studies have showed that's exactly the impact. So we have these well-meaning words, but they uh, often counterfire.
1: And what's the final play?
2: So the final play is in the industrial age, because leaders were coercing workers what to do, the final play in the industrial age is conform. We don't want to appear approachable because it just makes it harder for us to get them to do what we want them to do. So we conform to our role in hierarchy. The new play is connect, connect as humans. If you're going to ask people to make decisions, decisions pass through the emotional wiring in our brain. We want to think they're all rational, but they're not. I mean, who am I going to marry? Where am I going to school? What's my, at the end of the day, it's always an emotional component of that decision. Healthy decisions come from healthy emotions. Healthy emotions come from feeling human at work, which means we have to connect as human beings. And so there's a lot of legacy behavior at work, uh, posturing, and I was in a, in a big global corporation. You could tell you were getting closer to the more important people because- The carpet, the carpet was getting thicker (laughs) (laughs) and there's all these trappings of, of hierarchy. We don't need to reinforce hierarchy. What you want to do is actually reduce hierarchy, not to zero. A, you can't and B, I don't think you want to, but you, we got to get the humanity, the connection of humanity back into work if you want your people to be involved in decision-making, if you're going to ask them what they think, then, then that's decision-making. So that's what the final play is.
1: All right, thank you. Now, could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
2: I really like, I sound maybe like a geek, but I really love Churchill's use of the language. And so when you take a quote like his, we shall fight on the beaches, And you look at the words he used, Now I had an opportunity to see a museum exhibit where he had some drafts of his speeches and he had different words. And the pattern was he was always going back to the Anglo-Saxon variant. So he could have said, we shall travail on the shoreline, but that those are French. Mm -hmm. Thank you.
1: And how about a favorite book?
2: I love what's popping in my head right now, Mindset by Carol Dweck. She talks about having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman Tversky. So good. I just read also Michael Lewis's book, The Undoing Project, which is about the work that Kahneman Tversky did where they came up with a lot of these uh, biases. There's a guy here. Here's one that most of your listeners might not have heard of. A guy named Pangsepp, P-A-N-K-S-E-P-P psychologist tickles rats to hear them laugh.
1: Yeah. Sounds like fun. (laughs) So anyone
2: who does that has got to be interesting. (laughs) And he's, he's got, he's he's got a number of books. They're very, I don't understand half of what he says, but one of the things he talks about is we're we're wired with, uh, one of the systems that we're wired with is called a seeking system. This is the curious system. This is the one that says, I wonder what's behind that corner. I wonder what's over that mountain range. And a lot of some of our, a lot of our social ills uh, can be traced to some sort of dysfunction in our seeking system. And I just think stuff, his stuff is really interesting. Oh, intriguing.
1: And tell me, is there a particular nugget you share that people quote back to you and uh, you're known for?
2: Uh, Well, we say build leaders at every level. One of the things I've been saying recently I've been hearing a lot back is push authority to information, not information to authority. And what we're referring to is in a hierarchy, all hierarchies have the same characteristic, which is the information rests at the peripheral of the Mm -hmm. hierarchy, at the people at the periphery of the hierarchy, the ones in the code, talking to the client face-to-face, in the operating room, flying the airplane, whatever. But the authority for making decisions rests typically in the middle. So the 20th century approach was to create systems and and scorecards and software where we aggregated the information from the periphery and channeled it into the middle for a decision. And what we say is what you want to do is take the authority for making decisions and push it out to the periphery as close to the person, people who natively have that information. You get much faster feedback loops, you get much more resilience, agility, adaptability, and you get more responsible behavior by, by those people. And it's more fun. And they feel like their jobs matter. mm uh-huh.
1: Yes. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
2: So our program is called Intent-Based Leadership. So go to the website, Intent-Based Leadership. And I am on social media. I'm, I give myself a grade of like D, D plus uh-huh. for social media. <laughs> But I'm on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, at Marquet, And the other thing we have is a thing called leadership nudges. We have uh, almost 300 now come out once a week, a one minute. A lot of these things uh, we talked about are in these little leadership nudges. So one minute video, low production quality, me just talking into the camera saying, hey, when you go, go to ask a question, start the question with how. You'll be impossible to ask a binary question and it'll
1: be a better question. Mm -hmm. Well, David, this has been a treat. I wish you lots of luck and keep up the good stuff you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really loved David's simple shift of vote first and then discuss, as opposed to when you discuss first, then the variability condenses and we hear less from folks. I might even say, get people to vote anonymously (laughs) so they can't look at reference of what's sort of the most influential or the boss or the highest paid person, whoever they're trying to kind of impress or be similar to that influencing impact is not there. I know other organizations have a rule where the most junior person speaks first, and that can be comparably good to cultivate more variability, more dissent, and as a result, get the best possible ideas out there and select it. And I'm digging. David's flavor there. So again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are awesome awesomeatyourjob.com slash F546. And if you want to catch our next guest, and I hope you do, if you push subscribe, you'll catch our next guest automatically. It's Simon Sinek. You may have seen or heard from him. He's got a few bestsellers and he's got a TED Talk that was like the third most watched TED Talk of all time. So he is talking about the infinite game, a mindset shift on what we're trying to accomplish and how we should think about what we're playing. Hope to
0: catch you there. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com